Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've probably heard this statistic before, but it's worth repeating. Drug overdoses have become the leading cause of accidental deaths in the U.S. 47,000 people died in this way in 2014. The CDC says opioid addiction is driving the epidemic. And four out of five new heroin users started out misusing prescription painkillers. Researchers say the consequence of this is the rate of heroin overdose deaths nearly quadrupled from 2000 to 2013. In Connecticut last year, 723 people died from drug overdoses, more than half were heroin-related deaths. The problem has spurred a lot of recent community forums and policy changes in our state. Later this hour, we'll find out about a new law that goes into effect July 1st that aims to prevent the addiction problem from worsening. No matter how disturbing the statistics on drug abuse, it's the personal stories that resonate when we talk about addiction. Today, where we live, we invited two Connecticut mothers into our studio to find out how opioid addiction has impacted their families. I want to welcome Sue Krusek and Michelle Sember to Where We Live. Sue lives in Guilford. Michelle lives in Branford. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank, thank you, you for having us. Thank you. I wanted to start with you, Sue. Tell me about your son, Nick. So Nick was my firstborn. Beautiful, funny, full of life, um, very athletic, uh, fabulous kid, my best friend. Um, and... Yeah, just, I mean, honestly, we still hear our stories about uh, him being the funniest kid, you know, people ever knew, full of life. You're talking in the past tense because you lost Nick a few years ago. I did. October 10th, 2013. Passed away of an overdose. So tell me when you found out that he was abusing drugs. All right. Um, I found out the year before Nick passed away. But his story started um, a few years before that. And, um, you know, by the time we knew, he was sent immediately to Florida to rehab. And um, where do you want me to, you want me to tell that story? Uh, you found, I think you told me when we spoke earlier that um, you first heard that he started using in high school, right? Right, right. So... After Nick had gone to rehab and, you know, he started telling his story when he was sober, he started his freshman year um, in high school. So he was a 14-year-old boy. It started right in the locker room right before his very first hockey game. Mm -hmm. And someone gave him some? A apparently a friend, teammate, um, tossed him a little white pill, which we now know, you know, is Oxy, and um, tossed it to him to help him relax before his first game. Nick was the starting center um, as a freshman on the team. So he, he was nervous and at 14, you know, accepted it, took it, and apparently liked it, sadly. So a few years later when he started talking about um, this pathway to addiction, um, I think you had told me that after that moment in the locker room, there wasn't a game that he had played after that he wasn't high? Never skated a game sober in high school, not one. 
And that's the thing with Oxy. You can you can lead kind of a normal life. You know, you, you can appear um, to be doing everything you should be doing. You know, they're, they're high-powered people, doctors functioning with, with this very addiction. And, you know, it's scary. And then all of a sudden it spirals. And that's when the heroin, I believe, comes into play. And it, it's ugly. Um, in studio with us also is a friend of yours, uh, Michelle Sember, who lives in Brantford. Um, your son, RJ, um, yeah. also um, abused drugs. Can you tell us when you found out? Um, I found out probably around graduation year, senior year in high school. And was it a shock to you? Had you seen any signs before that moment? Um, I just saw signs of him as a regular teenager partying, and he would go to parties and stuff, and he would say, I'm just smoking pot. But later on, I found out it was pain pills and oxys and stuff Mm -hmm. that he was using. That moment when you found out, can you tell us how you found out? Um, He was just, he was a functioning drug addict. He was working and everything, but he lost his job. He started stealing, and I said, you're, you know, you're doing more than just marijuana. And it came out that he was using pain pills and stuff. Yes. How did your family react when they realized that RJ had this this this, this disease? Complete shock because he's just a, a normal teenager. He was a normal teenager. And it was just a complete shock that he was using uh, pain pills. And then it turned to heroin. And Sue, uh, a shock to you and your husband as well when you found out. Oh my gosh, we neither one of us had ever n- didn't even know what an opioid was, yeah. no idea. You know, knew, knew he was having fun, a little too much fun, mm-hmm. recreational fun as a teenager, um, but no clue. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me are two Connecticut mothers um, whose sons have struggled with addiction. Sue Krusek from Guilford lost her son, Nick, in 2013. Michelle Sember has a son, RJ, who is in recovery, and we'll get to that part of his story. Um, But if you um, understand addiction, has your family been affected by this? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. What do you think of the state's efforts to combat the opioid and heroin crisis? Um, How can Connecticut better serve the needs of families who have loved ones struggling with addiction? Again, we want to hear your comments, your questions, 860-275-7266. Now, Sue, um, you said uh, a few years later you found out when he was in a rehab in Florida. You know, why Florida when you live in Connecticut? Well, sadly at the time, my husband's a school teacher at Guilford High School, and at the time, Blue Cross, our insurance um, through the state of Connecticut, would not pay for any detox or drug rehab program in Connecticut. My understanding is now that has changed, um, but back then we, we had no choice but to put Nick on an airplane blindly, send off to detox in another state, and um, Florida's a very common one, and then again blindly after detox have him sent to a rehab program, which we were, you know, self-pay. And was he 18 at the time? 19. 19. And so at that point, um, are your hands tied as well because he's considered an adult? I mean, how did you get him to go into rehab? Nick came to us uh, saying he had a problem and he needed to go to rehab. And that's really when we were like, whoa, okay. And so 
because of that, Nick wanted it. He, you know, he didn't want to be an addict. He, he was sick of that life, that secret life, and needed help. So had to go to help. Wh- whatever it took, he went. And no, he immediately put us, you know, on the papers. We were part of every step of the way. And uh, Nick and I were super, super, super close. I, I can't imagine him, a world of him ever shutting me out for any part of it. And how did that first experience at rehab go out of state? Um, for me? For both you and your son. <laughs> um, for Nick, you know, uh, it, it was supposed to just be his new life. Um, it was intended that he was never going to come back to Connecticut, um, not for many years anyway, due to, you, you know, everything he knew here was pretty much drug involved and easy access. So he was supposed to just make his way down there. And, you know, he we would have to fly him home every month. So we saw him every month and, you know, basically would sit on each other's laps. But he had a misdemeanor hanging over his head where he'd have to come home and go to court every month and then just to get postponed. And then it was when that misdemeanor, misdemeanor excuse me, um, was no longer. He was put on probation, meaning he couldn't leave the state of Connecticut because it was a misdemeanor. But if it was a felony, they would have paid for him to go back. And I I still don't understand that one. Mm -hmm. And then um, I would say a few months later, Nick overdosed. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're we're talking about opioid addiction in our communities with uh, two mothers, uh, Sue, who you just heard, lost her son, Nicholas, in 2013. And Michelle Sember from Branford is here to share her story about RJ, um, who is in recovery, I understand. We'll hear more about his story in just a few minutes. I wanted to uh, bring into the conversation a caller, Mike from Cheshire. You're on Where We Live. Hi, Mike. Hi, guys. How are you? I'm well. What do you like to add? Um, I was like that, uh, and thank you guys for putting this on the radio. I'm currently 30 years old, and um, I suffered from the opiate addiction for eight years. And uh, I don't believe that there's a cure for it, but I'm currently in recovery for over two years now. Yay, Mike. And um, I just wanted to put it out there that there's so many people suffering right now, especially in these towns in Cheshire. And we have to do something about getting people into recovery and taking away the stigma of addiction alone. Because it's so hard to come out to your parents or to come out to people and tell them that you're suffering to get help for what your problem is. Right. Now, Mike, you said you're in recovery for two years. Is that right? Yes. And what worked for you? I'm sorry. Say that again? Oh, you're in recovery for two years. What worked for you? So... Finally, um, for me, I finally hit my rock bottom, and that's the hardest part is once you realize that, you don't give up, and that's when you can finally change. So I did a recovery program out in California for 30 days, and then I came home, and I've been working a really solid program for the last two years, and it's changed my entire life. I got married three months ago. I took over my father's company, and, like, my life is just amazing now because of what recovery's given me. Well, thank you, Mike. I'm glad to hear that you're doing well and and you're able to join the conversation. I wanted to turn to Michelle Sember from Branford, your son, RJ, when you found out that um, when he was losing his job and stealing, how did you get get him into rehab? Is that something that he willingly wanted to do? Um, After a while, when he lost everything and didn't know, he's like, I I need to go away and try to start my life. So I did find a place in Texas that would take him and we sent him to Texas into rehab. But unfortunately, RJ um, kept relapsing in Texas. So eventually I had to bring him back home and um, try to find him a place here. And he did go into um, rehab here for a little bit. 
but it's been a long road with RJ. Um, once heroin gets into you, it, like he says, it just pulled you back. It's a really ferocious drug. And again, you had to, um, you know, your son went to Texas, Texas, so far away from Connecticut. <clears throat> I mean, yes. I, I can't imagine that was easy for your family. Was that better for him to get out of, um, you know, maybe some people who were influencing him, um, you know, while he was suffering addiction? Yes, it, it helped for a little bit. But then again, he did relapse. There. He relapsed there in Texas and went in and out of rehabs um, there. So... And it doesn't just take an emotional toll on you and and um, Sue's family, but financially, too. I mean, how do you swing it when, um, right. you know, you want to see your children, you beat this? Exactly. It, it's a big to- financial toll, especially when they come out of rehab. They just don't go back out on the street. They can go to a sober house, and sober houses aren't covered by insurances, even here in Connecticut. So parents are paying out of pocket or the addict, and addicts have no money. So it's mainly on the family to who want to help get them into a good recovery. Um, you both uh, made a decision to be public about your stories. Um, you know, can you talk about that decision and some of the feedback you've heard since, you know, being uh, very open? Yeah, absolutely. Um, somebody actually had to remind me of when I started getting active and proactive. And um, I, I was in a meeting uh, for the Guilford Day Drug Awareness Program in Guilford for the youth. And I sat there, and when, when I was asked that very question, I said, I'm just getting PO'd um, at re- reading all these children dying and, and their obituaries. And, you know, uh, you, you get to the point where enough's enough. And, you know, l- let's try to save some other families and parents from living this nightmare, you know, that, that we're in, you know, w- without our son. And, um, you know, I, I think I, I think Connecticut's come a long way. Thanks to Sean Scanlon and, you know, company. I, you know, m- my hats really go off to Sean. Mm-hmm. And you're referring to Representative Sean Scanlon, who will be joining us in just a few moments to talk about um, this new law in Connecticut that because of the story that, you know, you shared and Michelle, um, they were able to use those stories to help shepherd through this law. We're going to find out about that in just a few moments. Um, But you mentioned, I wanted to find out, Michelle, again, my question about, you know, why did you make the decision to be very public about something that, you know, some people want to keep private? They feel that there is still stigma about surrounding addiction. Because there's so many deaths, so many deaths right now with heroin overdoses. And at the ages of 19 to in the 30s even and I have an addict who can overdose God forbid and I want parents to realize that there it's you're not alone yeah you're not alone we're not alone in this you know we need to pull together we need to fight and help these kids they didn't want to grow up to be addicts they my son didn't say I don't want to be I want to be an addict when I grow up it's a powerful drug and I want parents to realize that there is help out there, and if we stick together, we can even make it better for everybody. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking with two Connecticut mothers about their sons' struggles with addiction. Their willingness to share their stories helped Connecticut pass a law meant to prevent the misuse of prescription drugs. We'll hear more about those efforts after the break. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This 
is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. WNPR has been focusing its reporting on the opioid addiction crisis in our communities. You can read or listen to those stories at our website, WNPR.org. Later, WNPR reporter Ryan Karen King will tell us about a story he's working on as part of the series. Today, Where We Live, we're hearing from parents whose children have struggled with substance abuse and have become heroin addicts. How has addiction impacted you or your family? What programs exist that are helping? What more needs to be done to help those families and those to get to recovery? You can join that conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. I wanted to turn now to Representative Sean Scanlon. He represents Guilford and Branford, uh, the towns where Sue Krusek and Michelle Sember are from, both mothers um, who've had children struggle with addiction. Representative Scanlon, thank you for joining Where We Live. Good morning, Lucy. So you co-authored legislation to cap opioid prescriptions and improve access to the overdose reversal drug known as naloxone or Narcan. You know, what prompted you to come up with this bill? Well, when I was first elected in 2014, I had a meeting uh, with Guilford Day, which is the group that Sue was a part of and, and referenced. And it was one of the first meetings I did after I won, and I sat down with them, and I was blown away uh, by the stories that they were telling me about how rampant um, prescription drug and ultimately heroin abuse was becoming in the high school that I had went to not too long before I got elected. Um, and when I got to Hartford that January and got assigned to the Public Health Committee, uh, I decided that this was something that I really felt strongly about learning a lot about and trying to do something about. And it's been a pleasure working not only with my colleagues, but with the two guests you have in studio this morning who, through their stories, have helped me become a better legislator and helped my colleagues really take on this fight. So tell us briefly what this law is going to do to help combat addiction in our communities. So basically, this law uh, has a broad scope. And, And as you referenced earlier, it is one of the most comprehensive, if not the most comprehensive laws in the country. But What my colleagues and I really wanted to do with this bill uh, was to address the fundamental uh, origin of this epidemic, which is the massive amount of unused and expired prescription drugs that are in our society, um, which, as you said, at least four and five new heroin users are coming directly from this excess that's in our society. And so we thought the best way to combat this long term would be to cut it off where it begins. And that usually is when somebody, either innocently, uh, as was the case with Nick Kruzek, or intentionally goes into a medicine cabinet and finds an old bottle of pills in their house or a friend's house and quickly becomes addicted to them, and that spirals out of control. And by limiting this to uh, seven days for all non-chronic pain, we really believe that we can make a huge dent in the number of new people who become addicted to these powerful drugs. So it limits all first-time and non-chronic pain opioid prescriptions for adults to seven days. What about if they're a minor? So if you are a minor, from now on, when you go to the doctor, um, that doctor has to explain the dangers of these drugs to both the patient and their parents um, so that these kids know um, that these are dangerous. And I'll tell you, Lucy, the, the, the fundamental thing that really shook me when that very first meeting I did was listening to these students tell me about how they know smoking cigarettes is bad, they know drinking and driving is bad, but most of their friends didn't ever think that these pills were bad because why could they hurt them if they take if their grandmother takes them, if their mom or dad takes them? They can't be bad. They came from a doctor. And that mindset is very dangerous for us long term. 
Uh, and part of the reason why we want to educate those minors at the onset of getting these prescriptions is to make sure they know the dire consequences of abuse. And this legislature, this law, um, come July first, um, it also allows you know if people you know are are dealing with pain, they can still go back to their doctor if they need more of these opioids. Um, but there's a review process there. Can you talk about that? So. Um, Last year, in 2015, um, I worked with my colleagues to pass a law and under the leadership of the governor to strengthen our prescription drug monitoring program. And what that is in a nutshell is that anytime you go to a doctor uh, and get a prescription, that doctor has to then enter that information into a database that's a secure database to ensure that you're not going from doctor to doctor in what's called doctor shopping to get prescriptions. And so we further strengthen that law uh, here in 2016 Um, But really what we did, Lucy, with this is we were very clear to make sure that the people who actually need these pills to survive, whether it's because they have terminal cancer or fibromyalgia or any other serious chronic pain, uh, that they could still get access to these drugs. But what we didn't want to have happen anymore was that when a 21 or a 22-year-old gets their wisdom teeth out, we did not want that kid sent back home with 50 pills when in reality they're probably only going to use four or five. And then that excess 45 pills winds up somewhere in our society, whether it's in a medicine cabinet for a long time or given out innocently to friends. That's where we know this problem starts. And if we can cut that off and do it without hurting the people who need these drugs to survive, uh, I think we will go far in terms of minimizing the number of new people who are becoming addicted to these drugs every single day. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Um, hold the line, Representative Scanlon. I wanted to take a call from a listener. Ray from Wallingford, you're on where we live. Hi, how are you? I'm well. What would you like to add? Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just want to add that anyone listening, the congressman, I implore you to um, figure out and call and, and just push to have insurance companies cover extended care sober living facilities. Right. I run an extended care sober living in Durham, Connecticut, and what we have found is that those who are successful battling this disease are those who come out of a detox, an IOP, PHP, and go to another facility. This disease is is ruthless, and you need to treat it as something as a long-term care, not something that's going to be healed in 90 days. Because if you do not um, um, reassess your entire life when you come out of these facilities and learn to almost walk again, you're going to relapse. Right. Thank you for your comment. I, I know both mothers in studio are nodding their head. I wanted to go over to Michelle Sember from Branford. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, insurance companies covering extended sober houses. Um, how vital would that be for RJ? That would be great. It would be so wonderful because it would it would just help the cost for families. And for the addict, exactly. And Representative Scanlon, you heard Ray's comments. Um, you know, what else can be done to help families um, who have children, uh, brothers, sisters that um, need this extra help? So, as in the case with any issue in, in public policy, there's no one size fits all silver bullet solution to this problem. Um, since I've been in the legislature, I obviously have made this the single biggest issue I've worked on, and I've been proud to work with colleagues to pass bills in 2015. And in 2016, and I think those bills are going to do good things for Connecticut. Um, But this fight is long from over. And the stories that uh, Michelle and Sue and your last caller just talked about, um, this is going to be an ongoing issue. 
And the insurance component of this is uh, something I hear quite a bit about. And I know that many of my colleagues, and especially myself, are committed to keeping up this fight and keeping talking to people and learning their stories and then putting the stories that they give us to good use by passing constructive public policy. Um, I hope that in 2017, the legislature will do something about this insurance gap problem uh, because so many people are not being served uh, right now through this issue. uh, And I hope we can address that in the future. I want to take another call. Lori from Oxford, you're on where we live. Hi, Lori. Good morning. How are you today? I'm well. Good. Um, I just would like to share a story. Um, My nephew came to live with us after being living on the streets and my husband and I took him in and he tried to get clean himself, managed to stay clean for about 60 days on his own. Um, Scenario went back, visited with friends, OD, ended up in the hospital, uh, came back out, tried to stay with us again, but our rules, no drugs, our home. So he couldn't, but stayed in touch. And shortly after the holidays, admitted that he needed help. And we got him some help here in the state of Connecticut. But again, the law and insurance policies don't help someone with addiction. You can only get three to five days. You can get a maximum at the time for detox and rehabilitation. Well, anybody who is dealing with this illness knows it takes more than five to seven days just to get sober. So anyways, uh, you know, thank God for wonderful parents that we have. A grandparent helped us pay for um, his care at Silver Hill. He stayed there for a month, went to High Watch Farm up in Kent, and then from there did an intensive six-week program out of the Waterbury system and then worked a 12-step program. I'm here to say got a full ride to scholarship at the Boston Museum School of Fine Arts and wrote about his addiction issue and all his struggles. And that could have been for him or against him, but in this case it was for him. Mm. He lives in Boston today, has a job, is successful. They have to hit rock bottom before they can come back up. And as a family, you need to seek help as well, using an Al-Anon program, understanding the addiction, how it affects you as a family, and persevere through it. And remember, it was not you that caused them to make these choices. They were choices they made of their own. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Lori. I'm glad to hear that your nephew is doing well, uh, uh, Lori from Oxford. And we're short on time, so we'll have to let you go. Um, But I wanted to get back to the mothers in the studio. Uh, Michelle Sember, again, your son RJ is in recovery. Um, You're hearing from other families that have been able to help their loved ones. But, you know, I understand that he's out of state right now. Every day is still something you worry about him. Every day. I worry about him every day. But he is out of state. He's actually working. He has a job. Um... And he's doing okay. But we take one day at a time. And I've learned that also in r and meetings. I do go to r and meetings. And it's don't be ashamed for parents to go and check those out because they do help. So, um, yes, but he's doing fine right now, one day at a time. And I wanted to turn back to Sue Krusek, who lost her son Nick in, in 2013. Um, it sounds like, um, you know, advocating for other families is helping you on the the road um, where you're getting over your grief. Can you talk about how you get support? Um, my family, mostly. 
my family. Um, I have a couple of grief groups that I should probably attend a little bit more, but, you know, I started off there, and that was where I got my most help. Um, other parents who had lost children, and we, we're just kind of a group of our own, um, thankfully. We get each other like nobody else can. But, you know, I've got the most amazing husband and mom and children and in-laws, and uh, honest, honestly, I, I couldn't do it without my family, extended family, and um, people like Michelle, you know, that I've met through this tragedy. Um, but th- that's really it. I don't know if talking about it helps or hurts, you, you know, but I, I believe it's helping others. I wanted to say you came to studio today with a T-shirt with uh, Nick's a picture. And, and what does it say? Nick Kruzak, always in our hearts. When you saw that bill pass um, and become law, what what did you think? Oh, my gosh. It still gives me goosebumps. You know, every every time I hear it, I want to grab Sean and hug him and kiss him again. Um, Yeah, just phenomenal. Walking on air. Big step. Yes. Huge. And, Michelle, you got to know Sue um, through a community forum. We just have under a minute advice to parents who are going through what your family is. Parents, don't be ashamed. um, And be a parent, not a friend to your kid. That's, you know, the big thing is to be a parent, realize what they're going through, whether they're struggling with the anxiety or depression, too, because that could be a, a part of drug use. And, you know, be, everybody, if we span together, we could get through this together. When I spoke to you earlier, you'd also mentioned that, that schools play a role, better education. A better education. I think schools can do a little bit more of bringing awareness to, I know they do drugs and alcohol and stuff, but we need to bring it out more with the opiates. Like Sean said, kids didn't realize that opiates can hurt them, a pill can hurt them. Um, So we have to, we've done a lot with alcohol and stuff, but now we need to do a little more with drugs and heroin, especially heroin and the fentanyl that's in the heroin. Mm -hmm. I want to thank Michelle Sember from Branford and Sue Krusek. It's, it takes a lot to share personal stories, and, and we thank, thank you, you for, for doing that. Thanks okay. for having us. Also, Representative Sean Scanlon, who represents the towns of Guilford and Branford. Thank you so much for joining the, co- the conversation. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, After, Sean. Thanks, Sean. After the break, we'll hear from WMPR reporter Ryan Karen King and his story about how recovered addicts and heroin users have created an underground network to prevent overdoses. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Sunday is Juneteenth, a day to commemorate the end of slavery in the U.S. On the next Where We Live, we'll reflect on this history with music and conversation with Alika Hope and the Ray of Hope Project. Also, we'll talk with two people who spent years of their childhood recreating Raiders of the Lost Ark. A documentary about the film will be screened in Hartford this weekend. Hope you can join us. Today, we've been hearing from families and talking to lawmakers about new legislation aimed at combating Connecticut's opioid crisis. 
One community organization in Hartford says policy change is not happening fast enough. Joining us in studio with more on this story is Ryan Karen King, a digital reporter for WNPR and the New England News Collaborative. Ryan, welcome to Where We Live. And thanks for having me, Lucy. So who's calling for more change to combat uh, the opioid crisis in Connecticut? So for this story, I've been speaking with Mark Jenkins. He's from the Greater Hartford Harm Reduction Coalition. When you say harm reduction, I've heard that in the past. What are we talking about? So that uh, harm reduction organizations uh, uh, follow the principles that they acknowledge that Drug use is happening. It's not something that we can pretend is not happening. Um, and, and therefore, they want to minimize that the harm that the drug user um, might experience to their health, to their body. Um, the idea is that they don't want to condemn drug, drug users and they don't want to ignore them. Um, so some of the services that they offer, and uh, this, this in also includes uh, the Greater Hartford Organization, uh, our syringe distribution, um, counseling, and uh, referring users to services, um, as well as uh, naloxone distribution, which I'll talk about a little bit today. And are we going to hear from Mark? Yeah, let's hear a little bit from Mark Jenkins, and here he is. He's explaining his organization's slogan, which is Standing in the Gap. Connecticut is rich in services, but they don't always reach the people they're intended to reach. So by standing in the gap, our aim is to connect people with those services. Uh, where there is something missing or someone falls through the cracks, that we connect those people. The idea is that if you're a functioning addict, meaning that you have an addiction and you still have a day job, you can't get to these uh, you know, social services um, in the middle of the day. Uh, you might not be able to get to a program until after 5 p.m. Um, and in the meantime, without access to these services, you're still using um, at non-traditional hours, meaning this the spiral of addiction um, gets worse and worse. Um, and it also gets back to the, the philosophy of harm reduction, um, that there's a lot of forces working against drug users, poverty, class, racism, um, social isolation. And, and they're looking at addiction as a disease, not necessarily a, a choice. And what's Mark doing? We hear so often about the heroin crisis here in Connecticut, nationwide. I mean, what is he doing to help um, with this crisis? Um, so the gist of the story that I'm reporting is that, you know, lots of people are dying from overdose. We hear that um, and we see it in the data. Um, you, you talked about earlier that there were seven, over 700 fatalities due to overdose and over half having to do with heroin. Um, but there's this drug called naloxone, and it's designed to reverse an opiate overdose. And, and last year, um, in addition to the Good Samaritan law, allows pharma pharmacists to prescribe this drug to anyone who walks in. Um, and um, on the state of Connecticut's website, you can actually see a list of about 100 pharmacists in Connecticut that are known to distribute this. But this still doesn't reach the most at-risk population. People often aren't seeing the doctor or their pharmacist to get this drug, and that's because of stigma. That's because they you know, don't have access. Um, and, and a lot of the times, um, uh, users and people who are around drug users are the most likely to reverse an overdose. So uh, what Jenkins wants to do, um, working with other volunteers in his organization, is create an underground network of people who are trained 
uh, to reverse an overdose. And these are heroin user to heroin user exchanges of naloxone. Um, and basically that involves getting naloxone into these people's hands and having them pass it on to others. It's sort of a pay it forward model. So Ryan, tell us how Mark gets naloxone or Narcan into the hands of users. Uh, so Mark runs a number of uh, free training courses. Some are at addiction recovery programs like a methadone clinic. Um, others, uh, he actually offers a free uh, weekly class in his office, um, and I'll give the information out for that a little bit later. Um, and one of the programs that he wants to start working in coordination with the Department of Corrections is uh, he wants to get naloxone into the hands of released inmates. Um, a recent study out of Washington shows that released inmates are 13 times more likely to overdose than um, heroin users who aren't uh, coming out of prison. Um, here um, we'll hear the audio from uh, a kit. It's an auto-injector. Um, and this is the type of kit that he prefers to distribute, it's, but it's really expensive. Um, the ones he've, he's been able to distribute so far um, have been coming from donations from the manufacturer. If you are ready to use, pull off red safety guard. To inject, place black end against outer thigh. Then press firmly and right through the close for five seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Injection complete. That's it. The, the Department of Public Health pilot program where he gets most of his supplies aren't the, uh, the, the type of kit that speaks to you. It's, it's a, a manual kit where users use a needle to inject um, the naloxone into the overdosed uh, person. Um, but uh, it's a, a little bit more complicated. And so where does Mark get the naloxone? You mentioned the Department of Public Health. Right. Um, so the majority of his supplies right now come from a pilot program under the Department of Public Health. Um, it launched in 2014, um, and last year they distributed over 800 kits. And self-reported data uh, comes uh, has showed that um, that has that resulted in 60 reversed overdoses. Um, but the pilot program at this point is actually coming to an end. Um, and uh, when I talked to, to the uh, uh, representative from the Department of Public Health who oversees the program, she said there was there's actually a shortage of naloxone right now, state-funded naloxone, um, because of the so, so many different requests they get from programs like Mark's, law enforcement, emergency rooms. Um, and in that situation, um, Mark actually often has to go into his own pockets to provide it. That's interesting because just the other day the White House released a statement that um, they're providing um, more investment uh, with states to uh, help with the drug problem. I wonder if that's an interesting follow-up to find out if that money will come into the State Department of Public Health to, to help with these kits. Absolutely. And, and I talked to someone from um, a, a program similar to Mark's in Massachusetts, and they said that it's it's not a new thing. Um, at, you know, advocates for, uh, you know, in harm reduction organizations have been calling for naloxone for a while. And in, in places like Massachusetts, um, these programs have existed uh, far longer than programs like Mark's, which has been around for two years, um, funded by the state. Um, and, and in Massachusetts, they actually ha don't have a shortage of, of naloxone like we do here. It sounds like you spent a lot of time with Mark. Um, do we have some tape of the people that he's working with? Uh, we do. Um, so we'll, we'll, let's start with um, Lauren. She, is, she lives in Enfield, um, 
and uh, we'll listen to a part of a video Mark recorded in his office with her. Um, she's recalling a situation where she used the naloxone kit that Mark gave her to reverse an overdose and was called um, to the scene of that overdose. Um, and she's explaining to us that she had just used it on this man um, and he had just gained, sense, uh, back, uh, gained back his senses after overdosing. And once he did start to talk, he was absolutely confused, had no idea, didn't know what his last memory was, had no idea what had happened. So I had told him, I was like, well, let me tell you what happened. Um, I just got a phone call that you were overdosing. So my name is Lauren. I flew over here with a Narcan kit and I just used one of the kits on you and welcome back. And uh, he had said, what's your name? It's like, Lauren, can I give you a hug? And he came over, um, gave me two big bear hugs. Um, and then a third time had asked my boyfriend, can I hug her again? She just saved my life. And came over, gave me a third hug. Um, just probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life was, you know, I just saved a stranger's life. And he knew it and I knew it. And it was just an amazing feeling knowing I don't, I don't think he would have survived. There's, he was down. He was laid out. He was down. Um, and I reversed it. And he's alive. Wow. So you said she's she lives in Enfield. So people in her community know that she has naloxone on hand um, when there's a situation that arises. I mean, are there other ways users can pass on naloxone or Narcan um, in Mark's underground uh, overdose prevention network? Yeah, I think um, we'll, we'll play some tape uh, from a woman named Annie. She lives in Hartford, and uh, this also comes from a video interview that Mark took um, uh, recently. Um, she essentially runs uh, an unofficial underground safe injection space um, from her home. She's opened up her home to other heroin users who can come in and know that they can use, um, and if they overdose, someone will be at hand with a naloxone kit to reverse their overdose. Safe injection spaces in the United States are largely unheard of. Um, there's a space in Boston now where users can go while they're high, but they can't inject there. Um, in other countries like Canada, there's safe injection spaces where users can go to use um, and, and know that naloxone's on hand in case something goes wrong. But here we'll hear from Annie. She's, re she's just returning a used uh, naloxone kit to Mark, um, and she's, just, she's explaining how she just reversed her mother's overdose um, and her husband's just an hour before this video was taken. Out of these, there was three, and then the, I had more that I had done. My mom, there was, I'm forgetting about someone. Last time you were here, you woman. You did your mom last time you were here, you did yeah. your mom. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, you so did that your was mom the one. Again? Yeah, my mom, it was what, a week ago. Mm. Anything with fentanyl? Anything with fentanyl, she goes out, and I know because her hands, she does this thing with her hands where they clench up, and I know it's fentanyl instantly. Oh, yeah. She can't handle it. tonight, two bags. Two bags, and that was it. I mean, he can normally, he can do more than that. But it was, it was almost within, like, probably three minutes after he started to fade. And I knew, like, so I stood up and I went over and he, he knew I was going to do it. He knew that I was going to give it to him and he didn't fight at all. He was, like, shaking his head, like, yeah, do it. So he came back, within a couple minutes he came back. And he was all right. But that's, 
It's a lifesaver, obviously. And shortly after this video was recorded, uh, she had overdosed, and her uh, husband then used a kit to reverse her. Wow. So in this one family, you have three people struggling with substance abuse. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, at least within, three people. At least. Yeah. You know, when people hear their stories and, and hear these situations, um, you know, there's critics of state-funded naloxone that, that say that this does little to eliminate addiction. Um, and how would advocates respond to that critique? They would probably say that calling 911 is part of the harm reduction training for naloxone. And that means that, you know, while naloxone is being used to reverse an overdose, there are other health complications that could come over an overdose. So they're getting a health official or a health worker on the scene and bringing that overdose person to the hospital. Um, that means in, in that situation, um, there can be um, a, a time where someone um, asks them about getting into recovery. So uh, naloxone in that case can be used as a vehicle to getting uh, a user into recovery. Well, when we talk about recovery, I mean, some people struggle with substance abuse for many, many years. Um, you met someone that's been an addict for over 50 years? Right. Um, I talked to 76-year-old Sherwood Taylor. Um, he's one of Mark's closest friends. And what's remarkable is that most people um, die within 15 to 20 years of when they start uh, using drugs. Um, and Sherwood has been using heroin um, for over 50 years. Um, but because of, you know, whatever combination of his tenacity or luck or just um, he has a, a you know, a, a personal belief that he does not share needles, um, he's lived defi in defiance of these statistics um, and hasn't had too many serious health effects um, until recently when he had um, a very large abscess in his shoulder. And it was so painful to remove it, he decided to give um, recovery another shot. So right now, he's um, again entering recovery this summer, um, and he's been clean uh, for over a month and a half at this point. Um, and um, over the years, he's seen a lot. He's seen a lot of change in drug policy. Um, on the streets, he's seen change in the purity of heroin. Um, and he's witnessed how drug users are treated by the rest of society. Um, so here we're going to listen to him explain how he witnessed a friend of his um, die in his apartment of an overdose. His name was Mike. You know, we had both cops together. You know, we got a half a bundle together. That's five bags. And uh, I can't, you know, we came here because he was originally from New Britain and we had met and got along. So uh, I didn't usually have people coming in my house, you know, getting off. But he was a friend. Otherwise, if he didn't come here, he would go in a bandit building or whatever to get. But since he knew me and me and him was tight, I would let him get off here. So this particular day, I was downstairs at the time, my bed and everything, because the air condition is downstairs. So we're sitting up there. So uh, I get off. And so I'm right back watching TV. And I'm, I'm seeing him, you know, he dumped three bags in. And uh, he get off. And he said, he lived in New Britain. So he said, I ain't going to say this. I'm going to do this here so I won't have it on me. And he did it. Matter of fact, that chair right there, he, he fell out of it. Boom. He fell on it. I said, Mike. Then he was just breathing hot. So I, you know, I figured, you know, he was all right as long as he was breathing. 
So I'm watching people. So all of a sudden, you know, I don't hear him, you know, I don't hear him breathing no more. So I'm right. So I get up, I, you know, I snap and I say, then I call 911. You know, the guy OD'd here, da da da. They send me uh, a fire department first, you know. And they worked on, they did work on, but he died. Before, they carried him out here in a body bag. And, I, and the police, well, that's another one gone. I just looked at I wanted to just grab him and choke him. You see, that's the mentality that they have. You know, of a dope fiend, you know, and I felt real bad about that man. And there was another guy here, but I saved him with the stuff that Mark had. You know, but it, I had it in a little uh, thing, so I called Mark and asked him how many CC you used to give him, and da da da. So I shoot him up, and you know, a half hour or whatever. You know, he was, oh man, thanks Wood, man, da da da. Yeah, you saved the old boy, you know. But I saved one, and one died. So if, uh, if you're interested in, in hearing the, you know, more about Sherwood's life and his experiences over the years, um, we'll be rolling out some coverage um, of both Mark's work in the community and stories from the people that he works with and knows, like Sherwood, um, over the next few weeks on WNPR.org. And you can also, you'll also hear a radio story um, in the next few weeks on WNPR. One last question, Ryan. You've obviously spent a lot of time reporting this story and others that we'll be hearing. For our listeners who may have loved ones who are struggling with addiction, where can they go to get this you know, overdose prevention kit? Uh, so most doctors and pharmacists in Connecticut can hand out um, naloxone to people who come in. Um, but Mark also holds a free training course every Thursday at his office that's open to the public. And you can find more information and register for that course at ghhrc.org. I want to thank Ryan Karen King. He's a digital reporter for WNPR and the New England News Collaborative. You can hear more of his reporting in the coming weeks on WNPR. And visit WNPR's SoundCloud page to hear more about Sherwood and Mark, people profiled in his story. Thanks again, Ryan. Thanks, Lucy. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's digital editor is Heather Brandon. Executive producer is Katie Tularski. Continue the conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.